fourth personage that we see here is Michael. Look at verse 7. We've already read some verses here. Let's read a little more. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. This Michael is referred to as having responsibility over angels. You see that in your study notes. Now, even though they're referred to as his angels, we know that everything belongs to God. So the, this wording here reminds us that he has responsibility over them. He has a leadership role over all these other angels. And also it says that he, Michael, and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels. Well, Michael here is referred to as, and he is, the archangel. And that's the blank there in your notes. Michael is referred to in, in different places in our Bible. In Daniel 10.13, he's referred to as the chief prince. In Daniel 12.1, he's referred to as the great prince. But it's in the little book of Jude, the little single chapter book of Jude that most people never even read the little book of Jude. I preached when I was in preaching class in seminary, I preached from Jude verse 3. And the, and the professor said, I've never heard anybody preach from Jude. Uh, that, that There's a powerful little book there, and it's in the book of Jude that Michael is referred to as the archangel. He is the chief angel. Well, number five, let's get on to this fifth personage. We have the remnant there in your study notes. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12, and we're going to be focusing now on this remnant. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who is accused, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they, this remnant, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time." First of all, let's notice their chant. Their chant is they are excited about the fact that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Again, accuser is one who brings a legal accusation against another. Now remember, he is the one, this enemy, Satan, is the one who accuses you, brings accusations against you. Now, he does that in a lot of different ways. But the problem is sometimes we, as believers, we confuse satanic accusation to Holy Spirit conviction. And a lot of times people have a hard time differentiating between the two. When is it that the enemy is railing an accusation against me, and when is the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin. Let me give you this little uh, hint here. One of the ways you can tell the difference is this. The enemy, 
the accuser of the brethren always sends you inward and downward, making you feel like a rotten dog, bad, as terrible as you can possibly feel. Holy Spirit conviction always sends you outward and upward for the answer because it is to God that you must go when you are convicted of actual sin. Now, if you, when you deal with and when we properly deal with sin, and John reminds us and the Bible is clear that yes, we all sin and have sinned since the time we gave our lives to Christ. If you've never sinned since you gave your life to Christ, you need to be right here. I mean, you know, you're, or you're just not being honest. Because the Bible says that all of us have sinned. So how do we deal with those sins? We deal with them with 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, if, and we know and are say this is a third class condition, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now that's how you, that's how we as believers deal with sin. So when you commit a sin, whatever it is, and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that, He's not convicting you to make you feel bad, make you feel like a dog and miserable and, and, and just kind of sneak into yourself and just become depressed and discouraged. He's convicting you to send you out and up to God. Now what's exciting about this, and we, we'll move on here in a minute. Jesus has paid for all of your sins. Do you agree with me on that? Past sins, He's paid for them. Present sins, He's paid for them. Future sins, He's paid for them. Now, based upon what Jesus did on the cross for us, we stand as believers in a position of perpetual forgiveness. I'm not saying you never sin. I'm not saying that. But you stand in a position of being able to be perpetually forgiven by God because of the promise of 1 John 1, 9. And so when you commit a sin, the best thing to do is to deal with it according to 1 John 1, 9. Go outward, upward, and get the answer. And just remember that the enemy is always trying to cause you to go inward and downward to make you feel bad. Three words he loves to use. Shame on you. Parents, I want to encourage you. Please, don't say that to your kids. You know how it makes you feel. When somebody says shame on you, that makes you feel terrible, sends you inward and downward and makes you feel bad. doesn't send you outward and upward. And so if it makes us feel bad, think about what it says to our kids when we say that to them. Figure out another way to admonish them. Here we have the encouragement to remember that the saints are excited. They are praising God that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down because, and they're praising God because they know that they can have victory over the accuser of the brethren. Notice their victory. Look at verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Three things I want to ask you to jot down here on your notes in addition to your bullets there, how they overcame him. And this is on the bullet of their victory. How they were victorious over the enemy. 
and they overcame him. They overcame the accuser of the brethren. First of all, notice, this is the first thing which you write down, by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb here speaks of the life of Jesus Christ poured out in sacrifice for us. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Notice, secondly, not only by the blood of the Lamb, but the second thing, they overcame him by the word of their testimony. Now, we need to park here just for a minute. This phrase, the word of their testimony, does not specifically relate to standing up in church on Sunday night and sharing your testimony. That's good to do that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But there's a whole lot more than that. When he's talking about the word of their testimony, he's talking about our life. Testifying to who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. In your life, in your practices, in your activities, that you testify your life is a living testimony of the salvation that you have in Christ. I want to give you four ways that you can share the word of that testimony. I know you're probably running out of space here, but but maybe find a space there somewhere. First of all, you need to share and you need to proclaim the word of your testimony of who you are in Christ. You need to share that with other people. As you have opportunity, you need to share and be a witness to the saving grace of God. Practically declare to them who you are in Christ. Now, you have to let the Holy Spirit lead you as to how to do that, when to do that, the words to use. But you need to share that. The word of your testimony of who you are in Christ needs to be heard by other people. Secondly, it needs to be acknowledged by you. You need to tell yourself who you are in Christ. Now, you won't be able to write all these down, so don't try to. You can listen to it on the podcast. But I want to give you just about 26 to 30 ways that you can acknowledge who you are in Christ. Just kind of listen to these. You need to acknowledge yourself and remind yourself that you are accepted in the blood. That's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. That you are a beloved child of God. That you are a chosen one. That you are a Christian. That you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're reminding yourself of these things. That in Christ you were elected before the foundation of the world. That you are in the family of God. You are God's child. You are an heir of God. You are an individual uniquely created by God. As the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have been justified by faith, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. You are being kept by the power of God. Simon Peter tells us that. Jesus said you are the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world, but also you are the lights in the world. You also can profess and confess to yourself, Jesus is in me, and I am in, in Him. We see that in John 15 and 16. You are not a slave to sin. You do not have to obey the temptations of sin. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a partaker of the divine nature. You are protected by the power of God. 
You have been quickened by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, You are the righteousness of God. You are a saint of God. Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit we find in the book of Romans. You are united with Christ and will be forever. You are a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. You are a wife to Christ. And guys, that includes us because we are the bride of Christ. You are extra special. That's a stretch on that one. When you get your glorified body, you will be forever young. And because you are saved, you can sing without any reservation my mother's favorite song, We're Marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Now, my mother loved to sing that song, not only because she was ready to go to heaven, but because she was born in Zion, Kentucky. Great song. We need to remind ourselves, folks, who we are. Because the enemy is going to try to accuse you of being something that you're not. And that's the third person you need to bring your testimony to, and that is Satan himself. When he tries to come your way and tries to accuse you, make you feel like a dog and a wretch and worthless and no good and not beautiful, not handsome, however he comes to you, makes you feel weak and anemic, you need to go back to the Word of God and remind yourself who you are in Christ. As the Bible says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But fourthly, you also need to confess who you are to Jesus Christ. In prayer, folks, when you talk to the Lord, it's all right to tell Him what you know to be true about yourself. The Bible actually says, the Hebrew writer actually tells us that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace and there find grace to help in a time of need. But I want to tell you, if the enemy's got you feeling worthless, makes you feel dumb and like a jerk, of no value, what's the chance of you going boldly to the throne of grace? You're not going to do it. But as you remind yourself of who you are, as you claim and as you acquire for yourself right out of the Word of God who you are, you can go boldly to Him. You can take your petitions to Him. You can intercede for your friends and your loved ones. And so, notice, not only did they overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of their testimony... They also overcame them by being yielded to Christ. To being totally yielded to Christ. It's there in that 11th verse. And they did not love their lives to the death. Here's what that means. They were not so attached to this world that they were unwilling to die. If it need be, if the persecution if if the ways of God would be somehow benefited by their death, they were willing to die for the cause of Christ. Your missionaries, they don't want to die on the, on the mission field, but they're willing to. As an IMB trustee, I've had the opportunity of talking with, with young missionaries, and they would come to the board and they would simply say, where does nobody else want to go? Where is it too dangerous to live? That's where I want to go. These folks are ready to live a life totally dedicated to God. Here's how this remnant overcame the accuser of the brethren, 
the deceiver of the world. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by their total yielding to Jesus Christ because they did not love their lives to the death. They were willing to die for the cause of Christ. Well, this remnant is God's elect people. One of the more difficult to kind of figure out here. But these are people that are elect, the chosen, the saved ones. They're ready to walk with God and serve God. Well, we've got to move on here. But as we wrap up this this chapter and move on to chapter 13, I want to encourage you to apply the things that we're talking about here. Don't just let this be a lesson. If you leave here tonight and you're feeling bad about yourself, maybe the enemy is just beating you up and making you feel like a dog, go to the Word of God. Take the truths of the Word of God and practically apply them to your life. You say, Brother Tom, I don't feel like doing that. I'm not talking about feelings. Feelings are so powerful in your life, it takes two other powerful entities in your soul to overcome your emotions, your mind, and your will. And you must choose by an act of your will in the spirit of your mind to choose to apply these truths and then you can overcome the enemy just like these people overcame the accuser of the brethren. Well, let's move on to chapter 13 and these two last personages. First of all, we have the beast out of the sea. Now, we've talked about the woman is Israel, the dragon is Satan, the child is Jesus, Michael is the archangel, the remnant is God's elect people. Now we come to this beast out of the sea, chapter 13 and verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns on his horns, ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Tonight, when you get home, compare chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 3, and notice how how it's almost an exact comparison of this beast out of the sea and this and Satan, the 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 fiery red dragon. Notice, first of all, he's rising up out of the sea. Some people think of the sea here as the abyss. You remember that this this is a dragon. Excuse me. This is the beast that killed the two witnesses that we just recently studied about. And it says that that beast came up out of the abyss. And so many interpreters say then that this sea then refers to the abyss. Others refer to the sea as people, humanity. You, you often hear people refer to a sea of faces, a sea of humanity. And so just, what, we're, what we're talking about here is this beast comes up out of humanity and is deeply demon-possessed and demon-inspired in his work. He has seven heads. He has ten horns. We've kind of talked about that already. He has ten crowns. He has blasphemous names on his heads. Indicates the fact that everything he is and everything he does is in opposition to the will and the ways of God. Now notice verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Simply for the, for the speed here, jot down there in your notes, the leopard here refers to Greece and Alexander the Great. Past time, his work. The bear 
The feet like a bear refers to the Medo-Persian Empire. Medo spells M-E-D-O hyphen Persian. P-E-R-S-I-A-N. The Medo-Persian Empire. The lion, mouth was like a lion, refers to the Babylonian Empire. Now when you couple what we have here in Revelation 13 to what we read in Revelation chapter 12 verse 3 and what we're going to find in Revelation chapter 17 as we get there in a few, in a few studies, what we have here again is the beast that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, which we just, where we got all that information, again reminds us of this revival this resurgence of a Roman Empire that's going to be in power in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Notice, he has power, position, and authority. We found that in verse 2. In the latter half there, verse 2. The dragon himself gives him this power, this position, and this authority. Moving on here, notice, one of his heads was wounded. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Basically what we see here is this, this wound should have been a deadly wound, not able to survive this wound. What we're actually seeing here is the political death of a leader. And he shouldn't have been able to have been able to rise to power again, but he was able to rise to power again. And the whole world marveled and notice, followed the beast. Look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. They were shocked that he was back in power again and they were able to follow and they were caused to follow this beast. Notice also, drop down to verse 5. And verse 6, he will be a smooth talker. Look what it says here. And he was given a mouth speaking great things. The idea there is pleasing things, nice things. But out of that same mouth comes blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. There again, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name everything he stands for his tabernacle speaks of the dwelling place of God and those who dwell in heaven speaks of the saints the people of God well let's move on here he's a he's a smooth talker we uh, we, we could talk a little little bit about that one but uh, let's move on here he's allowed to make war with the saints look at verse 7 and it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Here he is one, again, a military might person causing to uh, overcome. Not kill, but overcome. He's also given great authority. Notice, second half of verse 7, let's read on into verse 8. Chapter 13 and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and who do, all who dwell on the earth, notice, will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They are going to worship him. They are going to follow him. Uh, not only will they just follow, they're going to worship him. And, and it's going to be a, a blind kind of obedience. 
And then look what he says. Verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now here's all that saying is this. Yes, this guy is bad. This beast out of the sea is bad. But there's coming a day when the tide is going to turn. And even though he is a demon-possessed one and able to wreak great havoc in the world, there's a day when he's going to, the tables are going to be turned on him and the spear is going to be pointed in his direction. I don't think the beast out of the sea wants us to name him. The beast out of the sea is the Antichrist. That's who that is. He is also referred to as the coming world ruler. He's the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now John said in his ministry there are many Antichrists. And John described the Antichrist who one, is the one who denies the Father and the Son. If you want to write that down in 1 John 2, 2. Lastly, the seventh image here, we have the beast out of the earth. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Notice that imagery. He had two horns like a lamb. We think of lamb as meek and mild. And so his nature, the nature of this particular beast, this beast out of the earth, he's going to appear to be one that's going to be really on your side. He's going to do things saying he's doing it for your benefit, to help you out. He's all for you. But then notice the Bible says he has a mouth like a dragon. He spoke like a dragon. Notice there are two horns like a lamb. Horns are power. He has a little less power than the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist. He speaks like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast. Look at verse 11 again. And even down to verse 12. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Notice. And causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. Notice, next bullet there, he causes people to worship the beast out of the sea, which, of course, is the Antichrist. We also see he performs great miraculous signs. Look at verses 13 and 14. He performs great signs so that he makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. You remember that the two witnesses had the ability to do tremendous signs and, and tremendous miracles. Here we have the enemy, this beast out of the earth, actually mimicking and copying some of the things that the two witnesses were able to do. Kind of reminiscent of back in the days of Exodus when the people uh, copied the, the, the signs that Moses was able to, able to carry out. So he performs signs. Look also, let's read on here a little bit further. Notice the next bullet there. He inspires construction of a false image. Look at verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. 
telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Here we have the actual inspiration of a false god, of an idol to this beast, and people are required and caused to worship him. Heading now to the mark of the beast. Notice verse 15. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is going to be some kind of demonic ventriloquism. Now, certainly in our day of technology and animation, we know this is certainly possible by way of video to actually create an image that appears to speak. But evidently, and the wording here is indicating he's actually going to be able to take inanimate material, dead material, assemble this image, and somehow be able to appear to be able to bring life to this thing so it can speak. It's going to be a dastardly thing. And anybody who does not worship this image, this constructed image, will be caused to be killed. It's, it's going to be sad, sad day when, when all this happens. Well, let's read on here. Verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their forehead, or excuse me, on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Now let's, uh, let me catch up here and make sure we're all together. He inspires construction of the false image. He requires the mark of the beast. That's in verses 16 and 17. And so this beast of the earth is actually referred to and called the false prophet. He's the false prophet. He's actually called this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. Now as you think about these three guys, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, we have a trinity. With God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we have the true, genuine Trinity. With this false Trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, we have a tremendous setup for a, a, a world war, a war to end all wars as things come to a climactic end at the end of the tribulation period. So let's talk about this mark of the beast for a minute. The mark of the beast is one of those things that gets a lot of attention. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And what's really fascinating about it is the Bible never tells us a whole lot about this mark other than what we see right here. There have been many attempts to describe and define and figure out the mark of the beast, and I'm going to settle all the questions tonight. I'm glad you laughed. It was a little humor there, not much humor, but... but I mean, there have just been many ideas. Back in the days of, of Caesar Nero, everybody thought he was the 666. He was the mark of the beast. Uh, some of you have been around long enough to remember the days of uh, in the presidency of, of President Reagan. And many believed he was the beast. Because Ronald Wilson Reagan, each of his, his names has six letters in it, so they thought, well, he must be the beast, so the mark of the beast somehow. But there have been all kind of silly ideas that have been uh, presented 
But some of the key words that are noticed, you notice there in your text there, one of the key words here is calculate the number. See there in chapter 13, verse 8, calculate the number. To calculate means to count up, to count up the pebbles. There's also a phrase there, it is the number of a man, referring to the fact that it's a man's number. Now, let me give you two possible ideas here that are probably some of the most popular of trying to get an understanding of, of why. Because the Word actually tells us to, to try to, to calculate the number, and then there's wisdom. It's going to take wisdom to figure this out. First, and as we get to the, notice the, the board here. In John's day, of course, the, the Romans were in power. Roman numeral equivalents uh, and the Roman numeral system were very popular in his day. Now, most of us learned the Roman numeral system as kids in school, but probably most of us don't remember much past the I, the V, and the X. I mean, after that, it gets a little fuzzy. But notice, if you take the first six components of the Roman numeral system, and there are actually seven, but because six is a significant part here, you take the first six... And the I equals 1, the V equals 5, the X equals 10, the L equals 50, the C equals 100, centurion, that's where we get the idea of 100, and the D equals 500, and you count up, that's what that word calculate, to count up, 500 plus 100 is 600, plus 50 is 650, plus 10 is 660, plus 5 is 665, plus 1 is 666. I don't know if that tells us much, but... But if the idea, it, it probably speaks to this in that this guy, this beast, is from the Roman Empire. And of all that we have read and all that we have studied about this revival or a resurgence of the, whole, of the Roman Empire, it's not a stretch to think about it in that way. Another way to think about it is that phrase, it's the number of a man. Now, in the Bible, the number six is used in many different ways to refer to man. God created the earth in six days, the dwelling place of man. Uh, he was, the man, man was created on the sixth day. There were six cities of refuge that the people in the Old Testament could seek refuge from if their life was, if somebody was trying to kill them, there were six of those cities. Goliath was six cubits high. Nebuchadnezzar's beast was 60 cubits times six. And so six is the number of a man. Well, seven is the number of God. It's the perfect number. And so what the, some say that what this refers to is that no matter how strong the beast seeks to be, He's never going to be seven. He's never going to be, he's always going to be shy of God. If the enemy of this beast were God, his number would be seven, seven, seven. But because he's always going to be less than God, he's always going to be six, six, six. And, and, and the, the real kicker about this whole thing is we're not going to be here. We don't want to be here. You don't want your friends to be here, but the reality is just as God sealed and marked those 144,000 for sealing and protection, here we have once again the enemy mimicking and trying to copy God because he's going to mark those who are his followers. But I want to tell you, in God's marking, it's for protection 
and for freedom and for the sealing aspect for the enemy, any mark he puts on you is always for bondage and for death. And so we don't want to be there. If things work out as I see them in the Word of God, we're not going to be here. You certainly don't want your friends to be here. And so that's the best I can do on the mark of the beast. It's a number. It's a sign that only God knows. And it's going to be a significant, deadly, diabolical thing in the end. Well, as we pray, I want to pray for your friends one more time. I want to pray for the folks that you know who've never given their lives to Christ. It could be that I'm going to be praying for your husband or your wife, a child, a parent, one of your siblings, one of your extended family. But as I voice our prayer, what I'm really going to be praying for is that you will have the courage to share your faith with those around you. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, the hardest people to witness to is my own family. Well, just because it's hard to do doesn't mean it's impossible. If you will go in the strength and the power of God, even with a quiver on your lips and a tear in your eye, you can share with them that Jesus saves, Jesus loves them, and wants them to have an eternal relationship with Him. Father, as I come to you right now, I thank you so much for this evening. A lot, a lot of material that we've looked over tonight, Lord. And Father, I pray that even as we go home and maybe pour over this outline again and read these chapters again for our own admonition and our own encouragement, I pray, Father, you would give us illumination as we do so. But Father, ultimately, I, I want to pray for those that we're thinking about right now. People who need to be saved. People that as best we can figure out and discern, they have never given their lives to Christ. And Father, I pray right now that wherever they are, sitting at home watching the television, out and about, whatever they're doing, I, I pray, Father, right now and somehow in a way that only you can do this, that you would pierce their heart. Reveal Yourself to them in their need for a Savior. See themselves as naked and undone before You and needing the robe, the white robe of the righteousness of Christ. And Father, I pray for folks right here in this room. I pray You give us the courage to be able to share our faith that all have sinned and fallen short, that the wages of sin is death, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay those sins for us, and that we can confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and enter into a relationship with Him. Father, bless us as we leave here, whether we're heading home, going out for a bite to eat, whatever it is we're doing, Father, I pray You give us safety as we travel and a good night of rest later on. For it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. <laughs>